Hey there. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. And unto you. And also unto thee. A blessed day and a blessed 2024. Yeah, give us more in 24, Daniel. More in 24? Is that the chant? I think so. Um... Give us more, like a like a real capitalist. Yeah, more and more and more in 24. More till we hit the floor in 24. <laughs> there we go. I think we got it. You did it. Yeah, hashtag capitalism. Say it one more time. Courage and bravery. Give us more and more until we hit the floor in 24. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Man, and also into the a new year. Yeah. So with the new year, uh, what, what do we pick for a quick and nerdy topic? I thought it'd be good to start off with a bang. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Let's get out there. Let's put a new year, yeah, new you. You don't have a second chance to make a first impression. That's right. This is like our 31st impression. Well, first impression 40, of 2024. Of 24. Yeah. So let's get out there. Let's do an episode on grief. <laughs> so we're doing grief today. Yeah, let's go grief. Yeah. <laughs> let's go LMG. LMG. Yeah, let's LGG. Let's go grief. Yeah. Let's go LGG. LGG. And so, unfortunately for our listeners, this will not be a brief on grief. This will be kind of a longer episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, good stuff, man. But Happy New Year to you, Daniel. And unto you, a happiest of years of new. I believe all that. Thank you. So, Big should time. we hop into this jam or what? Let's do it. Man, so for grief, we're going to kind of do our usual thing where we define the word, right? Yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning that we were joined by a friend of ours who will talk a little bit about grief and uh, how it shows up in clinical settings and her work with grief. Oh, I'm super excited for this episode because we did something unique. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to wait to shout out? Yeah, yeah. We'll get that suspense. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, everyone on the edge of the seat. So let's define grief. Come on. How about with Merriam-Webster? Yeah. Do you want me to go through that or... I'll just jump in there, man. We can ping pong it a little bit. Okay. So Merriam-Webster has a few different definitions. They do, yeah. That first one they say is a deep and poignant distress caused by or as if by bereavement, which is the state of having experienced the loss of a loved one. Oh, yeah. Uh, Definition two from Merriam-Webster is a cause of such suffering, life's joys and griefs. Yeah, yeah. And the third one could be like a trouble or a nuisance. Like that's enough grief for today. Okay. Yeah. Probably like when people are listening to this episode, like, this is giving me a ton of grief. Yeah. yeah. The last one I think we can relate to, it's like a playful criticism. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you give me a lot of grief. Oh, I was going to say it the other way. Like you've been giving me a lot of grief. Yeah. yeah. But usually for you and I, um, practically it plays out the other way. Like you give me a lot of grief. Yeah, I give you a lot of grief. Yeah, I believe this. Yeah, yeah, kind of more in how it unfolds. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Merriam-Webster, right? Yeah. They, they give us four different definitions and then notice note ways that the word is used differently in context. Yeah. So we can't go into grief without going to Urban D, right? I mean, yeah, the source of all knowledge, Urban Dictionary. No doubt. The Urban Dictionary is a place where you go if you don't know what a word means. Yeah, like blamo. Like blamo, for instance. Yeah, and um, if you're learning that a person goes to the Urban Dictionary to look up a word that you used, <laughs> it produces a lot of nerve. Grief. Yeah, grief, yes, and uncertainty, for sure. So, Urban D. Urban Dictionary. A profound mental anguish that one feels when one loses a loved one, often accompanied with feelings of sorrow, regret, anger, guilt, and feeling lonely. Man, Urban Dictionary might have outdone Merriam-Webster on this one. Yeah, that's actually like straightforward for them, right? Yeah. That's a good definition. Yeah, yeah. I will say that it kept going and went a little bit off the cliff. Okay. 
off the rails. Yeah. Second half. Yeah, so no way, no. We're going to go ahead and leave that definition as is. If anyone wants to go find that, feel free. But I think the main things out of this Merriam-Webster and this Urban Dictionary definition are essentially just referring to grief as being an experience that we have when losing a person in our life. Um, so to go beyond that a little bit or expand upon that, we thought it'd be really fun to bring in one of our friends as a guest, and her name is Dory Beckley. We'll allow her for her to introduce herself here, but she's going to talk a little bit about grief, give her her own definition and how it shows up in clinical settings. My name is Dory Beckley, and I'm a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Arizona. Uh, I've been working in mental health for about uh, this is my ninth year, coming up in my ninth year, which feels like a really sweet spot, right? Like, I don't feel so green that I'm still climbing that super steep learning curve as a counselor. However, I'm still humbled every day and learning so much and feeling really engaged in the work. Um, I love being a counselor. I love hearing people's stories and, you know, co-creating something together on their journey. I enjoy working with all kinds of people. You know, sometimes counselors really like to, you know, specialize. And I have a few special trainings in trauma and grief and a few other things. But really, I just love working with people across the lifespan. I love having a college student, you know, a middle-aged individual, you know, someone 75 years old, experiencing all different kinds of things. So I'm a mental health counselor, and I really like working with people. As a clinician, I experience grief as what we feel on the inside after experiencing a significant loss. So it's the emotions, the thoughts, the physical sensations that are happening inside our body as a result. Um, it can impact our heart rate, our respiratory rate, feeling cold or warm, the sensations in our bodies, a feeling of electricity or a feeling of heavy dullness. Um, and of course, it can bring tearfulness, desperation, many other emotions. And it, you know, grief can often take us by surprise, um, as it can be a highly intense internal experience. People often talk about it coming in waves, a pressure on your heart, a deep sadness, and of course, we'll get into the Kubler-Ross stages. But that's what I think of as grief, as it is a word to describe what it feels like on the inside, what we're carrying around day to day. Yeah, so you know, the Merriam-Webster and then Urban D were kind of talking about grief as being this experience that occurs following loss. And then Dory really pins that together in terms of how that is experienced internally. And so she refers to this internal experience of physiological you know, symptoms, such as like an increased heart rate, maybe an emotional expression along with that and accompanying thoughts. And so that was important to just kind of note both Dory's um, definition of grief and then also how that relates to loss as defined by Merriam-Webster and the yeah. Urban D. Yeah, her her summary is like kind of the embodiment, the description of it. It was really profound the way she could articulate how the internal experience is felt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the APA, the mothership, right? Mm -hmm. they, they have some uh, additional ideas or words around grief. And uh, yeah, you want to cover that joint? Yeah. So APA, this is, this is how they define and describe grief. They say grief is the anguish experienced after significant loss, usually the death of a beloved person. And then they list different um, aspects in which an individual can be impacted. And that includes psychological distress, separation, anxiety, confusion, yearning, 
um, obsessive dwelling in the past and or apprehension about the future. Um, and so it's important to note that grief, like it's just mentioned in the APA definition, is often considered in terms of death, but it also can refer to loss in general. So it can be a pretty broad definition, and Dory spoke so well to what it can feel like. Yeah, for sure. And then so here she's going to speak a little bit about how it shows up in counseling and clinical settings too. It shows up often, um, and it can show up in many different ways. It can show up as the loss of a loved one. It can show up with the loss of a job or the loss of a friend group or the loss of a beloved pet. You know, it can show up on a global scale when we read or witness something tragic happening in the news or, you know, in our state or across the globe, we can feel grief. Um, so it really shows up quite a bit in sessions. You know, it shows up often as someone just lost a loved one, right? And you can be in the middle of work doing something else and then this life event happens. So you kind of adjust your course, um, but it can also show up in really small ways. And I try to name it um, for people um, if that's helpful because it does often show up. I think it's a part of our life. You know, grief in and of itself is not a pathology. It's not a diagnosis, right? It's a natural experience. Um, so I try to name it and bring it into the room as much as we can. All right. So Dory does such a good job. She, uh, yeah, from what I take from her, she, she describes that grief can happen in response to a variety of triggering events that it can show up in a variety of ways. It's kind of an experience that occurs frequently in life will occur. Um, and it's not pathological per se. It's something that can lead to symptoms, but it's not pathological. Yeah, that seems like a really good point is just to normalize the experience. It's not a pathology. So going further, you know, something I always like to do is to look into the history of the thing. And so I think if we look at the history of grief through the, through the field or the lens of psychology, uh, one place we come back to is the homie, Sigmund. Sigmund. Sigmund Freud, man, 1917. And so he wrote a book called Mourning and Melancholia, which I think might be the title of my journal my journal for 2024. <laughs> if we're doing more and more to the floor, starting off with grief, let's just go mourning and melancholia, oh, man. This is good stuff. Going all in. Yeah, so in this book, Freud essentially talked about encouraging the process of doing grief work to heal from loss. And that was defined as grief work was defined as the process of breaking the bond to the deceased adjusting to new life and forming new relationships with other people. Wow. Pretty well, pretty good summary there. Yeah, not bad, huh? hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so one person suggested that according to Freud, the best way to overcome grief was to throw oneself into other aspects of life. And for me, that kind of reminds me of our last episode that we just covered. Mm-hmm. Defense on, mechanisms. A little bit on defense mechanisms, right? Yeah. Yeah, so recovering from grief to really just invest in some other area of life. Yes, I thought that was pretty interesting uh, to hear Freud's uh, contribution on the topic. But then also the next really big development didn't take place until the 1960s. And this was with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's probably most classically or most famously known for her work around grief and uh, her book, which is called On Death and Dying. Um, I thought it'd be fun to get to know a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Oh, yeah. Some fun she's, facts. She's referenced so much, I think, even in pop culture. For sure. Yeah, she seems really well-known. Yeah. Um, and so she was born in Zurich, Switzerland. Zurich. Zurich. Yeah, she passed away in the great city of... 
Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh. Yeah, man. At the age of 78. So she made her way out west from uh, Zurich. Okay. So I'm going to do a little bit of fun facts. Is that all right? Yeah, let's hear it. All right, man. So she was one of a set of triplets. Oh. And she was born at two pounds. Oh, my. Which blows my mind. I think I've maybe referenced this before, but the girls, my daughters were born at four pounds. Yeah. They were 414 and 47. And we joked that they were the size of a Chipotle burrito. So for me to be like two pounds is like half that. Half that. Yeah. Just bonkers. So she was born as a triplet. Um, And she did a lot of work with refugees in Zurich during World War II, which led her to do relief work all over Europe. And uh, she speaks to this really sparking her interest in um, developing the power of compassion and also noticing and speaking to the resilience of the human spirit. Mm -hmm. She ended up going to the University of Zurich. Hashtag go... Wine and cheese? Yeah, wine and cheese, man. Let's go Switzerland. (laughs) That's the mascot of Zurich. I think so. It's a a glass of wine and a cheese board. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the cheeses on their mascot? Gruyere. Okay. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I have no idea, man. Uh, Good cheese. Stinky cheese, hard cheese, white cheese, yellow cheese, all the cheese, man. Okay. Just cheesing it up over there. Um, But yeah, she went over to the University of Zurich to study medicine. She graduated in 1957. Following, she moved to New York for a psychiatric residency in Manhattan. Um, After doing her residency, she came further west and went to Colorado to work as a faculty member. During during her time there, she uh, was quoted during a lecture that she was doing an interview with a young, terminally ill woman and spoke to depicting the humanity in this person opposed to the pathology. And she was quoted as saying, now you are reacting like human beings instead of scientists. And maybe now you'll not only know how a dying patient feels, but you'll also be able to treat them with compassion. Oh, wow. And the same compassion you would want for yourself. Yeah. So this is like in the 60s, 70s when, yeah, they're trying to really rely on science. For sure. And she's tapping in more into that human spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, one question I'd ask is just the degree to which her experience in Europe informed how she, you know, then kind of went about her work in the States and Mm -hmm. became interested in uh, working with people who were terminally ill. She also founded a healing center in Escondido and then worked a lot. This was super fascinating to me to learn, but she learned, she worked a lot with uh, folks with HIV. Mm. Um, particularly on the East Coast, and she sought to build a hospice center for abandoned infants and children uh, with HIV in Virginia. And apparently her proposal to build this hospice created a huge opposition. People were really worried about becoming infected with HIV. Oh, boy. Kind of remember that time. Yeah, yeah. It was a big thing, right? Um, And so she actually ended up losing her house in a fire, and um, I don't believe that there was ever found the suspect or anything like that. We were able to prove this, but it was largely um, thought of as having been the product of arson. Oh, because of her work with HIV individuals. Wow. Isn't that wild? Yeah. She's had a lot of grief. She started out premature and kind of some high moments of grief. Totally. No doubt. And so her research interests spanned a large variety of people. She liked working with children, folks with HIV, and then folks who were in near-death experiences she liked to learn a lot about. And the last fun fact is that she is largely responsible for having started the hospice movement in the United wow. States in general. Wow. So it all kind of comes back to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah, kind of put her stamp on Western culture. Yeah, she really did. You know, and she is just such an important figure in the field and that sort of thing and has a lot of life experiences. So my question for you, Dunny, 
what do you think about the life of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her experiences? In what ways do you think that maybe informed her research interests and in taking on the, the topic or the field of grief? Oh, dang. Come on with that heat. Hot fire. Hot fire. Hot, Just fire. hot fire. Put me on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, ha- I have an idea, but it's pretty esoteric. Um, but I do, I do notice that some of her early life experiences uh, involved trauma. Like, she was born two pounds, like, uh, premature, right? Yeah. And was a triplet. Yeah. And then experienced all those early life war conditions in World War II. And so it's hard to ignore that she literally experienced what would be clinically defined as trauma and that that somehow wasn't correlated with a felt grief despite her age or her ability to articulate it. So this is the esoteric part. In my mind, I think, I wonder if as an adult, she looked for an understanding of a series of early life felt experiences that really revolved around grief and which led to uh you know her education and training and ultimately a lot of acts yeah yeah kudos to her she really translated that into action she did yeah Yeah. did some incredible stuff from a research standpoint and from a just helping people standpoint as well yeah and and so her her seminal work or the thing that she's most well known for is that book that she wrote on death and dying that was published in 1969 and in that book she she proposed predictable stages of grief like uh, common stages that people go through while experiencing grief. Yeah. And so known as DABDA. DABDA. Do a big day, Anthony. Do a big day, Anthony. Do a big day, amen. Okay. Yeah, and this is uh, <laughs> worth noting this is referred to as the Kubler-Ross model of grief. Yeah. yeah. So, so can we, are you okay if we go over those? Let's do it. So probably right. start with the first one. Yeah, I'll jump in with number one. Okay. So uh, denial. So that's the D in the DABDA. Um, this is essentially when the experience to individuals feels too surreal. Like they're kind of in denial of accepting the thing that has occurred. Hmm. So, um, you know, the thoughts just seem like a fog or a haze or surreal, uh, uh, unclear that the thing that's happened has happened. Totally. Yeah. And the second, uh, second stage, you know, when the, uh, when the denial cannot continue any further, people become frustrated. And so she refers to this stage as anger. Mm-hmm. Um, you might hear sentences or statements, something like, why me? Who is to blame? Why would this happen? You might see a lot of lashing out behavior. And I think of, uh, anger as having a lot of energy. That's mm-hmm. a very palpable type feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's looking to find ways to take action, right? Yeah. And then that evolves, and her model evolves into bargaining. So bargaining is the hope that a person can avoid the cause of the grief um, through bargaining or negotiating. And we've probably heard or seen, um, you know, people fall into this at various stages of life. It 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 can be exemplified by comments like, um, you know, I'd do anything to see that person one more time, or, you know, if there's anything I could do to say one more thing or to do something, I would be willing to do it. I'm willing to do blank to have that not happen. Yeah. And the fourth stage is depression. And so she says something to the effect of the person despairs at the recognition of their own or others' mortality. And so, again, this is kind of when the denial no longer continues. It gone through some of these stages, kind of reached this point where there's a loss of energy. You might hear things like, what's the point? I'm going to die soon anyway. Or what's the point? They're gone now. There's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. And so this one again, very uh, palpable, but just 
dark. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite of all the energy from anger. It's like the withdrawal. Yeah. 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 And then lastly, the A in the Dabda is acceptance. So this is where people move into a, a, a phase of accepting the thing that is. So accepting mortality or the inevitability of the, the thing that triggered the grief. Um, and this is uh, characterized by comments like, you know, it's going to be okay. Um, I can't fight it. I'm willing to accept it. I'm going to move with this thing going yeah. forward. Yeah. Voila. And, you know, so she, during the COVID-19 pandemic, was quoted as applying her stages to the pandemic and kind of what it was like for us. And so I want to highlight this just so that we uh, see in what ways it feels relevant, that sort of thing. So she had said, you know, with the pandemic in 2020, there was denial, which we saw a lot of early on. The mm-hmm. virus won't affect us. And then you're, you're fo- that followed by anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my activities. Yeah. I can't go to work, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, and then there's bargaining. Okay, well, if I social distance for two weeks, everything will be better, right? That was followed by sadness. I don't know when this will end. And then finally, there's acceptance. This is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed. Acceptance, as you might imagine, is where the power lies. We find control and acceptance. I can wash my hands. I can keep a safe distance. I can learn how to work virtually. Those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, which is a good example of, of how she uses her model. So, uh, you know, it's really powerful that she put words to that, that felt experience that seemed to resonate with so many people, but there are critiques of her model. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So kick us off, you know, I think you're the data nerds. What would be the first critique (laughs) of, uh, of her (laughs) model of grief? So there's a lack of empirical support, meaning that, uh, you know, research doesn't back up that these stages happen in a delineated fashion. And then secondly, that they happen in a linear fashion. So there's limited research that shows, hey, these things distinctly happen for everyone and they distinctly happen in this order for everyone. Right. Yeah. And I think there's also some research that would show there's other models that are a little more applicable in that way. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the things that you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the second critique of uh, EKR's model essentially is that it's built on a specific cultural context and really doesn't generalize to the experience of all people. Yeah. Which can be a common critique for uh, theories and ideas that come out of Western Europe and American psychology. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then lastly, one of the critiques is that uh, the resources, pressures, and characteristics of the immediate environment are not taken into account. And so this includes like uh, when people experience an event that may be correlated with grief, they have varying levels of intensity or availability even for support mechanisms coming out of the triggering event. And so this model doesn't account for that variability. Yeah. So those are the most common criticisms of EKR's model of grief. You know, in catching up with Dory, I was able to ask her just, what do you find as a clinician when it comes to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model? Uh, what do you see as being applicable or relevant? And do you see anything as missing? I find as a clinician, the Kubler-Ross model really helpful. Um, it outlines those five stages, as you all explain. Um, so we have denial, bargaining, anger, depression, and acceptance. In the work with clients, uh, it's, it's a really helpful like topographic map you know, to explain what they're feeling, to have touchstone words, to be able to name um, something that they're experiencing. So I find it really useful. That said, I, I sort of observe people moving through those five words, those five um, definitions, 
more in a way of, of states rather than stages. I think people often come to the work of grief and they're like, okay, I'm in this stage, so that means I need to complete this stage and then go on to this stage. And, oh, I'm almost done. I'm in depression. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and sometimes it can move in that way. Uh, I observe it move a little bit differently, though. It more seems there are states that people move around and visit. Sometimes one week they'll be hanging out in anger right? So we'll sit with that. And the next week they might be hanging out in some denial or I kind of think of denial as disbelief. I don't really observe clients actively denying a loss. It's more just like, I can't even believe I just lost my parent. I just, it doesn't seem real to me, right? It's more like that. Um, and that can show up, you know, two months after the loss, a year after the loss, you know, they're walking down the grocery aisle or on the holiday season and they're like, it just kind of hits and you're like, I can't believe I just, how could that be? How could my dad be gone? You know? Um, so it seems to me there are states that we kind of move around through and bounce around in and in sessions we get to really give space to those and hopefully, um, name them, honor them, validate them, maybe come up with some kind of morning exercise or way to externalize what they're feeling. But I also think, you know, it's like a map, like a topographic map, the stages. And just like a map when you're out in the wilderness um, is really useful, it's also not the terrain itself. So people can feel it so differently. Um, You know, a topographic map is not going to show you every rock and every little turn and twist. And you might have to do some decision-making through that. You might experience it a little differently than the map shows you. So um, I think as long as we keep a relationship like that to the stages, they're very helpful, you know, and we leave a lot of room for everyone's individual experience. Blammo. Just like we were saying, there's a great summary from Dory covering those stages. And, you know, again, I think something that she references, you know, what you might see as a clinician or as a person who is just generally experiencing grief is that there's these present stages. They don't seem to really occur or unfold in a very linear type way. Yeah. They might feel a million different ways. And despite that, at the same time, there are these kind of common experiences that do occur for people and having language for that is really helpful. So there's like these common factors, common experiences. Yeah, for sure. Which brings up the homie. Oh, yeah. George Bonanno. Bonanno. Is that how you pronounce that? I think so. I mean, if it's not, it sure is, because how is he going to fit it into the song that this George is Bonanno's? Okay. Uh, Columbia University. Hashtag go nerds. I think so. So, uh, George Bonanno. Bonanno? I don't know. Anyway, he wrote an article. It's called The Other Side of Sadness and What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss. And he summarizes peer-reviewed research on thousands of people over a couple decades. And so there are three principal findings from his research. First thing that he said is a natural psychological resilience is a principal component of grief and essentially that the ability to transfer, sorry, the ability to cope with things in general transfers well to grief. So having a nice foundation of coping skills and ways that you can keep grounded and that sort of thing will transfer to grief when it shows up in your life. Yeah. And then he also addresses, like we've alluded to a couple of times that there aren't linear stages that the experiences of of grief kind of like uh, go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, he says that essentially the absence of grief or trauma symptoms is a healthy outcome when working through grief. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, after uh, reviewing thousands of, or reviewing tons of articles and thousands of people over a long time, um, those were his findings. 
And then catching up with Dory again, I asked her the same kind of question. What kinds of common factors do you see in bereavement? You know, I think um, that's something I see a lot of in grief and is spoken to a lot in the circles of grief researchers and writers is that so often in our country, people feel like they're doing it wrong or they're feeling it wrong because it's so big and it takes you by surprise sometimes. Um, So I think a lot of people are looking for just some understanding, someone to share what they're feeling, to bounce that off and some reassurance that um, you're not feeling it wrong, right? You're not feeling it wrong. It's just what it feels like. And I think with that, I try to be really gentle and kind with this message with folks um, but it, it can be a long journey if we're staying with that example of like the loss of a parent. You know, it's not something that's over in 30 days, right? It's not something that's over in one year. Um, it's not something that's over in 10 years, right? It's, it's always something that will be a part of your story. Um, so as a clinician, I'm always trying to think about how to have those conversations skillfully and in an uplifting way. Um, and there's a lot of beautiful art activities and acts of mourning that we can explore with that. But um, I, I see a lot of common, you know, a lot of common work with that accepting that oh this is kind of my new reality Um, and it does change over time it doesn't always feel quite as intense as frequently however the intensity when it comes up will always feel intense Yeah, so at this juncture, we're going to make a hard pivot and talk about something referred to as meaning making Mm. and um, how it's a part of the grief process. A lot of people refer to it as the sixth stage of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's grief model. Uh, And so essentially, just to give it a quick definition, meaning making is the process of how people construe, understand, or make sense of life itself, relationships, events, etc., In essence, it's basically what narrative or story a person comes up with as it pertains to their life. Yeah. There's kind of a prominent example of this. Who we got? The the homie. The homie. Yeah. Victor Frankel. 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 Let's go. I thought you were going to say Charles Barkley, but... No. No. Okay. (laughs) So we got Frankel. Yeah. I don't even know how to respond to that. Perfect. (laughs) That's what you love. I love that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Victor Frankl, he, he wrote the book, uh, man's search for meaning. And, uh, he's famous for being in, uh, a concentration camp during the Holocaust and learning how to make meaning. He had his transcript, uh, stolen from him. He was a psychologist who had written mm-hmm. extensively and, uh, would rely on re- reading and writing and had those materials even taken from him and essentially learned that uh, it was up to him to uh, determine what his perspective or outlook was regardless of the moment and the consequence. So for someone to come from such hardship and to, to label that it's up to us to figure out what our perspective of it is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, he came up with a lot out of his experiences there, yeah. Yeah. Um, concentration camps, a lot of observations and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, essentially existential psychotherapy is largely credited to his work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, to borrow from, from Frankel, a person named David Kessler, um, developed what is referred to as the sixth stage of grief in a lot of ways. And that's called meaning. Um, and so a couple fun facts about David Kessler is he actually worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a lot. Wow. Yeah. And they published a couple books together. 
Uh, the first one was called Life Lessons. Two experts on death and dying teach us about the mysteries of life and living. Mm-hmm. And so that was co-authored with him and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And then the second book they did was called On Grief and Grieving, Finding the Meaning of Grief Through the Five Stages of Grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, I thought it was really interesting how those two, uh, their work overlapped a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, EKR had a pretty profound effect on his work. Yeah. And so he, he really dove deep into uh, making meaning as part of the grief process. And so he references seven things that are really important when it comes to making meaning. Yeah. Can we go over those? No doubt. Okay if we ping pong them? Oh, big time. Yeah. So those seven factors or principles, the first one is that meaning is relative and unique to the individual. Yeah, yeah. Second one is that it takes time. So he would say that this isn't something that just is construed or constructed overnight, but mm-hmm. that it takes a while for a person to find meaning in an event. Mm-hmm. And third is that meaning doesn't require understanding. So not all details are going to be clear. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting one, right? Right. And the fourth one is even when you do find meaning, you won't feel that it was worth the cost. So essentially, if you had this decision, you know, um, would I rather have this meaning in my life or the person back? Most people would choose to have the person back in their yeah. life. And then fifth, uh, your loss is not a test, a lesson, something to handle, a gift or a blessing. Uh, For example, loss is simply what happens in life. So loss is a part of living. Yeah, it's just a part of what goes on. Um, And the sixth one is that only you can find your meaning. I think that taps into the first one a little bit, but someone cannot prescribe meaning to your experience. Essentially, it has to come from within. Mm -hmm. And then bringing it home... Rounding out number seven, meaningful connections can replace those painful memories in time. Yeah, so all really important stuff with making meaning. And again, David Kessler is sort of the the person most associated with this concept as it applies specifically to grief and processing grief. Um, So again, catching up with Dory, she shared a little bit about the making meaning process in therapy itself. Yeah, I think meaning making is a really important integral piece of grief work. And it makes me think about acts of mourning. And as I mentioned earlier, I think of grief as what we're experiencing on the inside and acts of mourning as what we do externally to um, express how we're feeling, to honor that person, to connect with that person or to connect with our community. And I think for me as a clinician, I tend to do that kind of work with people. Like let's brainstorm together what kind of rituals or what acts of mourning you can create in your life, in your week, or at certain times of year um, to honor the person or to honor the loss, to remember, and to create and to inform how you stay connected. Um, There is a lot of talk of that lately of, you know, it's not about forgetting the person or forgetting the loss or let it go, move on. It's more about how do I stay in relationship to this person, even though I can no longer see them and talk to them in the same way that I that I could before. So I think people bring create a lot of meaning for themselves when they integrate this loss into their life, into their month, into a holiday, um, in some representative way. I observe this with you know, every client I've ever worked with, even in my personal life, ever, every friend or family member where we've been walking through loss um, together, it changes the way that we look at our own life. And I think it can give um, new inspiration and new directions for us. So I think it would be a mistake to say, what's the good thing about this loss, right? Like we don't have to 
think about it in that way, that can actually be kind of painful, you know, to suggest that, you know, maybe the loss just sucks probably, right? And in what ways does it illuminate for you newness, you know, how you want to be in your life, how you want to show up for those around you and your community. So it can bring some new life with it and it can bring a lot of connection. Yeah. And just like Dory's saying that meaning making can be so powerful and it can bring such a deep sense of connection in so many ways. Just like we were saying earlier with some of those seven factors too, again, something I would highlight, um, you know, again, is that it's personal and unique to that person it takes time and that developing that story or developing that, that personal connection or feeling the power of the loss in a sense in which it's been integrated into a person's life doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to shift over to uh, coping with grief. Coping with grief. There's Where only we... one place to go. Huh. The mothership? The mothership. The American Psychological Association. APA. Shout out APA. APA, yay. So they cover a bunch of ideas on coping with grief. Um, and we'll list those for you now and I'll, we'll also get some Adori's thoughts along with this, but you know, the first place they start is with the, the concept of acceptance that we talked about earlier. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross re- re- referenced it as her fifth stage, but also talked about as of giving you control and power in your life. Essentially the APA would say to accept your feelings and just normalize whatever it is that you do feel. Mm-hmm. And again, the process is individual and it is unique and it's unpredictable. And one day you might be in this stage and feel this thing to this certain degree. And then Mm -hmm. the next stage you might, or the next day you might be in another stage feeling something to a different degree. Mm -hmm. And it might feel like it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it doesn't match what other people expect or are telling you should feel. Totally. So to normalize what your experience is, is your experience. I think, uh, you mentioned that Dory talked about the uniqueness of the experience of grief in relation to a timeline or a trajectory for people. Can we listen to that? So when I see and hear trajectory for grief, what comes to mind is this question of timeline, right? Um, I know for myself and my own losses, that question popped up, you know, when is this going to be over? What does this look like? How many more weeks do I have to bear this feeling? You know, I should be done with this now. And I I certainly hear clients expressing similar things. You know, how long is this going to take? Or they might say something like, it's been a year. I shouldn't be feeling this way anymore. So I think it is so important. And one of the opportunities we have in sessions is to talk about timeline and talk about it, talk about grief in a way that it doesn't really respond to time in the way that we might like. It doesn't bend um, to our desires in that way. Um, and actually what I do observe is the more we try to bend it to a timeline or to our desires that can actually prolong and complicate things. Yeah. And so what stands out to me again, I know we've highlighted this is just how individual individualized this process is and bending the timeline can result in more difficulty than it will. And maybe a secured gain in some way. Yeah. So what else does APA have to say about it? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is this might seem overly simple, but they say talk about the loss that was experienced. And, you know, essentially if a person goes inward and tries to maybe keep everything internal, uh, it can re- it can result in a lot of isolation. And mm-hmm. we know, you know, through avoidance and that sort of thing, it doesn't bring you closer to a resolution of any sort. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bring you closer to finding meaning in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. So the APA would say talk about the loss. Yeah. And then uh, continuing on with the APA, you okay if I jump in? Let's go. So uh, the the third suggestion they have for coping with grief is to take care of yourself on a biological level. So being really aware of like eating well, exercising, sleep, 
uh, those things that set the baseline for us to be able to respond to intense emotions generally. Yeah, and those can be really difficult in a period of grief, but again, making sure that you're taking care of those the best that you can through that can be helpful. Nice buffer for stress and working with grief. Mm-hmm. Fourth one is reaching out and helping others with loss. Um, so they talk about being intentional about spending time with loved ones, sharing stories, sharing memories. And there's also some research that has shown that helping others with grief um, produces an added benefit as well. Yeah, I've seen that work really powerfully for, for people uh, on a personal level. Um, the fifth one that APA recommends for coping with grief is remember and celebrate the loved ones. So it, it means like treating anniversaries, um, you know, in a way that's intentional. It, it can be a big trigger for people. So being aware of that day coming up and doing something that may honor the loved one or honor the memory of the loved one, something like planting a tree or donating to a charity in that person's name, visiting a site or doing something related to that individual. Yeah. And what stands up to me in these is I think is leaning into the process or engaging life through the process of grief opposed to turning away from it. And um, you can see a lot of the benefits that the APA speaks to are the result of getting engaged. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in catching up with Dory, I was able to ask her, what kinds of recommendations would you make to a person who's dealing with a deep-seated grief in their life? Yeah, so deep-seated, maybe maybe that might mean it's been a few years, right? Um, it's been a few years since a child's passed or, um, you know, something that we also, that I also see a lot of with clients is like miscarriage or infant loss, these kinds of things, right? So sometimes it isn't so quick, like we talked about um, before, when it starts to become like, oh, this is still really impacting my life. And it's been a few years. It's been two to three years. That would be my recommendation if we're looking at time um, to maybe think about engaging a different resource, you know? And I think the beautiful thing about the modern world is there's many different ways to engage support that can look like maybe looking for a mental health therapist and doing some counseling. It can look like, um, you know, exploring support groups in your community or online. Um, it can look like reaching out to someone in your spiritual circle or your religious circle, um, or a mentor, uh, a friend. So I think there's, um, a lot of different ways to get support I think as a mental health clinician myself, I would say if someone is coming to us, you know, a couple years down the road and it's still feeling really raw and fresh and really showing up um, day to day, you know, come, come seek support. That's what we're here for. And I think my recommendations would be also in your in people's own lives is to really tell the story of the person and, and the loss, to talk about it, to find circles of people that support you. I've been really fortunate to find a couple of women here in our community who have also experienced the loss of a father. And so we have this little circle of like women who have lost their fathers. And it's so incredible. And we don't even do anything formal, but it's just a known thing. Like we have a shared common experience and we can connect on that together and it's such a powerful um you know neutralizer of the experience not canceling it out but it's just oh right you get it you get it right there is this unique thing so finding people that you can talk to about it I think is really important 
um, and making a little space for it in your life rather than um, trying to push it away. You know, how can I actually invite this into my life? Lighting a candle for someone on a certain day, you know, maybe that would bring some meaning forward. But um, so, yeah, making some space for it long term. All right. More words of wisdom from Dory talking about how grief can extend over time and that when it does extend over time, that it's important to look to those external resources for support. Yeah, for sure. I think of the role of social support in that too and how helpful that can be. Yeah. Boy, Dory really showing up for us today. Yeah. Huge shout out to Dory Beckley. Uh, thank you so much for offering your time and your, your thoughts and your knowledge and your expertise. Um, if you want to learn more about Dory, you can find her at Cultivate Counseling. She's a supervising counselor and licensed professional counselor at Cultivate. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dory. Why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. You always know where you can find us, beyondflag.com, flag spelled. F-L-G. That's right. We can find us on the Instagrams, and I think we still have an active Twitter account, also beyond underscore flag. <laughs> but before we cut it there, we're actually going to end with a little bit different. Today, we were going to conclude with a poem that Dory um, produced and rehearsed, and so we're going to conclude with that. It's called December Good Company. On the days when it all feels heavy, when the inner swirl matches the December bleak, I feel adrift, my gaze untethered. Although not alone and often in good company, gratitude will not bring back the things that have disappeared. When grief and loss are real, too, what then? I walk along the forested path of tall, straight ponderosa pines. I come upon a slanted one, maybe 15 degrees off a direct line to the sky. I approach this slanted tree like an old friend with a smile and a longing. I lay my weary bones to it. As my belly softens to the butterscotch bark, I turn my cheek to rest and my ears to listen. Of course, this tree here does not speak, but we understood each other. Maybe words sometimes fail anyway when it comes to grief, and perhaps being simply held here today on this gray, breathless morning is the language of love and loss. I smile again. I hear the birds and squirrels scuffling about on the forest floor. More good company. The morning dove takes flight again.